I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles, please, to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1, the book of Acts, chapter 1, uh, little ones in the Bible, in the pews, you got a Bible like this, if you don't have your own Bible, open it up with us and follow, us, follow along, it's page number 521, you will find us beginning on page 521, chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Follow along as, as all of us adults read. We all there? Amen. Good. Let us hear, beloved, the word of our living God. Acts chapter 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven." Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. There abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zeloit, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120, men and brethren, 
this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, a seldoma, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein. And his bishopric, or office, let another take. Wherefore, of these men, which have accompanied or accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one or one of them be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Well, just by way of recap, as we begin today's passage, hopefully we'll get through verses 12 through 26. We remember last week when we were looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, we saw that the glorious doctrine of the ascension is part of the fundamental cardinal truths of the Christian faith. The glorious ascension is intended to bring us great confidence and also great comfort. But we noticed something else last week when we were looking at the doctrine of the ascension that we saw again today in our passage reading of chapter 1. Jesus delayed his ascension. And we considered several reasons why Jesus took 40 days before he ascended and showing the victorious completion of his earthly ministry. And one of those prominent reasons, you remember, was the fact that he took the time in verses 4 through 8 to spend with the disciples, to instruct them, to further teach them regarding the kingdom of God, which would have produced in them a preparatory work for what he was going to call them to do, to go to the other parts of the earth and pronounce my gospel, my resurrection, be witnesses of me. So that's where we left off. Jesus gave them this commandment to go back to Jerusalem, the epic center, the hot spot of hatred to Christ and his message. As his followers, he said, go back. And wait, for the promise of the Father is going to come 
and a short period of time, he says, and, and a few days hence. And so now we come to verse 12. And today we're going to see the decision of the apostles and the disciples. Were they going to trust and obey Jesus Christ in this rather unrealistic command of going back to Jerusalem where there's great hostility toward them? Or were they going to resort back to their own doubts, uh, fears, understandably so, and go back to Galilee where it would be safer? And what we see in verses 12 through 26 demonstrates for us many good, faithful examples of what to do when we ourselves are commanded by Christ to do something when all of the circumstances around us seem like it's unrealistic and it's just totally unsurmountable and it's unachievable and it seems unrealistic. We are to trust and we are to obey. But beloved, as we will see today, the trusting and the obeying, it's not passive. It's not passive. It involves a lot of activity. And I hope that's what we see today. The main context is the replacement of Judas. But along the way, we see in their example of an example for us to follow when we find ourselves in like situations of uncertainty. Christ telling us to do a hard thing. Christ telling us to stick to what he has said. Will we trust and will we obey? The beginning of their trusting and obeying, as we're going to see in a moment, begins with prayer. But let's just look here at verse number 12. They... They obeyed, didn't they? Verse number 12. After the Lord's ascension, we read in verse 12 that the journey back to Jerusalem was undertaken by the apostles. We're told that it took a Sabbath day journey from comparing other scriptures with scripture. We know that that's about a mile and a half long. So they walked about a mile and a half and they go back to Jerusalem. So, so far, so good. They're willing to do what Christ told them to do. And we see here in verse 13, when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. When they arrived there in Jerusalem, uh, most commentators would lead us to believe that this upper room is the same upper room where Jesus was with the disciples on the eve of his execution. They point to the fact that this is, it's very plausible. This is the same upper room that they had in Jerusalem where Jesus appeared to them. And Thomas stuck his finger and Jesus aside. Now, while they obviously can't prove that conclusively, it just helps us kind of get a visualization of the context of what they're coming back to in Jerusalem. This upper room where they had spent these last moments with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Now, Luke is very careful as a good historian, going back to our introduction class of, the, of coming into the introduction to the book of Acts. You remember he was a very good historian. He is very meticulous in recording the remaining 11 apostles. Uh, kids in the church, raise your hand if you remember what I, what I said last week about remembering the name of the apostles. And see, oh, Abby does. Good. And she's ready, I can tell. Well, I'm going to stick to my end of the bargain. If you remembered the names of the apostles, I do have the prize for you. Okay, Pastor Doug knows how kids think sometimes, so I got the prize. But I, I did that with the admonition that, beloved, these were the 11 apostles chosen by Christ to begin to inaugurate 
the kingdom of God here on earth. And we should be well acquainted with them. We're going to learn much about them. It's not to venerate and worship them. You remember the exhortation I gave last week. But it is to know these men. And so he gives the 11 apostles names here. Some, when you read this, they, they kind of wonder why Luke is going through this meticulous detail at this point. If you think about it, when you read chapter 1, you get up here to chapter or verse number 12, and it goes into this kind of church business activity. Um, who's, the original, who's the remaining apostles? And then they're occupied with replacing Judas as a missing apostle. Um, it, 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 some people could lead you to the point that maybe this is just Luke trying to add some content to, to, to fill out his, his historical letter. And this is actually, beloved, this is what some New Testament critical writers will lead you to believe. Okay? What I hope to show and demonstrate in a moment, the reason that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is so meticulous in verse 13 of giving just 11 because we're supposed to notice that it's only 11. And we'll see in a moment why that's significant and why it's important. Now, in the names of the apostles listed here, uh, it does differ from Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark's listing of the apostles doesn't list for us Judas, the brother of James. And instead, they place Thaddeus there. So are we to conclude then, young ones, when you're reading in Matthew or reading in Mark, and then you come here to James and see the list of the apostles, you say, where's Thaddeus? Is there a mistake in my Bible? Did Luke just talk to the wrong eyewitnesses, you know, around 57 AD, and they, they forgot about Thaddeus? Well, it's very plausible, and there's a lot of good, reliable sources to indicate that since Judas, the son or the brother of James, who is, in other accounts we learn later, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, since he had the same first name or shared the first name with the traitor, Judas Iscariot, Matthew and Mark in their gospel account, they refer to him by another name which he would have accepted, he would have been known by, such as Thaddeus. This corresponds with what we know of other people in the New Testament. Who in the list of the apostles here goes by other names? Well, Peter... Right? Peter wasn't always called Peter. He goes by what? Simon, doesn't he? We know Joseph is often referred to, although not an apostle, but an early disciple. He goes by the name Barnabas. And so we're not, we're not, we don't have Bibles that got mistakes in them. Matthew and Mark refer to Jude as Thaddeus. Luke, talking to the eyewitnesses there at the time of what occurred in the upper room, refers to him by his real surname, Judas, the brother of James, otherwise known as Jude, right? Now, another interesting insight we need to point out here, especially if you've got a modern translation. Notice in the list of the disciples, there's this guy called, in the authorized version, it just says Simon Zelotes. Simon Zelotes. But in the modern translations, it's a better translation. It says Simon the Zealot. You think, well, Pastor Doug, why is that important? Because it helps you defend your Bible. Here's why. You see, 
there are a lot of people, we noticed this last week in the introduction to the book of Acts, who they're just ancient manuscript critics. And, and, and they'll lead us to believe, or attempt to lead people to believe, that the book of Luke, all it is, was an attempt by a Roman Greco author to make this early movement more sympathetic to the Roman Empire and more unsympathetic to the Jewish people in Israel. That's really kind of what's behind Luke. And they get, they got, they got different reasons why they try to give you that. But if you were attempting to do that, why in the world would you want to put in here that the heroes of the story, the apostles, one of them is a zealot or among the zealots? And the reason that's important, because out of the different classifications of historical Jews, the Jewish historian Josephus, he tells us that the zealots that Simon was part of before he joins the band of the apostles was the most radical was the most militant group. And so Luke's kind of defeating, is he not? His whole purpose, if he's trying to trick people into being unnecessarily uh, unfavorable to the Jews in Israel by making one of the heroes, one of the most you know, advocates of those who want to have Jewish independence. It just doesn't reckon, does it? So it is worth noticing here in the list of the apostles. So here we have the scene, don't we? These 11 apostles, after witnessing the ascension of Christ, they've traveled by foot back to Jerusalem. They're gathered in this upper room. And now notice with me verse 14, because it's instructive for us regarding their trusting and their obedience. It involved prayer and supplication. These all continued with one accord, it says, in prayer and supplication with the women and the mother of, of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brethren. This observation, uh, Matthew Henry states this, Christ had spent time in prayer for them, and now they are spending prayer and time for prayer for themselves. I noticed that a lot of the modern translations don't have the word supplication, and, and that's unfortunate. Because you see in your sermon notes, the word supplication that's in the older translations it carries with us, as you see, this idea of need, of want, of one's own privation. And so we get this picture in one accord. These apostles who have been commanded to go back to Jerusalem, they're together in one accord and they're giving prayers and they are aware of, they're cognitive of the fact of their privation, their great want, their great need, their great dependence. And they're involved in this activity of lifting up supplications and prayer. And beloved, as we're examining, trusting and obeying under the heading of prayer, it evidences for us two things. First of all, by prayer and supplications, the apostles are demonstrating, I have in my notes here, a realistic grasp. They're aware of their need. They're aware of their, their privation in their own limits and abilities as just men. On the one hand, they weren't gleebly naive to the severity and the seriousness of the situation that surrounded them. But on the other hand, they weren't paralyzed, were they, with complete fear. They did go back to Jerusalem. And we see them with prayer and supplication, evidencing the fact that they're aware of what's going on. As you see in your notes, this teaches us that trusting and obeying Christ's commands in difficult situations should always be accompanied with realistic optimism. 
They were realists. They understand their limits. They're falling before God. And they are supplicating unto God, asking Him for help. But they're also optimistic because they're in Jerusalem. Right? And this is how we ought to be. In our trusting and obeying what Christ calls us to do certain things, we ought to be realistic. Right? Optimists. But secondly, by prayer and supplication, the apostles are demonstrating, are they not, beloved, a complete surrender to the revelation of Christ? After all, they had just heard Christ tell them in verses 4 through 8 that indeed, yes, the kingdom is going to be restored. And connected with that is this outpouring of the Spirit of God, and it's going to come upon you. He's looking at these 11. They're the only ones there in that conversation. The Spirit's going to be poured upon you. And there's a specific reason we're going to see in a moment why it's going to be poured upon them. And what do they do? Instead of trying to get their little bitty brains wrapped around, how's this going to work? Any day now the kingdom is going to begin. Any day now the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel is going to begin. And somehow or another it's involving us. He wants us to go back to Jerusalem. Instead of trying to figure it all out, trying to find a safe haven until they figure it out, they surrendered their understanding unto Christ. Almost as if they're just little children, trusting in what he said. So as you see in your notes, trusting and obeying Christ's commands in uncertain circumstances is always accompanied with not blind faith, beloved. No, but rather childlike faith. Following Christ, trusting and obeying him, being realistic optimists will require childlike faith. This is why Jesus says, Over in Matthew 18, I say unto you, except you be converted to become as a little child, you shall not enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes as adults, we can make following Jesus Christ and what he tells us the most convoluted, complicated thing in the world. And I hope I'm not the only one that would raise my hand. A lot of times when you hear of situations going in our own personal lives, our family's lives, church life, The answer is very simplistic. What makes it so hard is sin. Amen? Sin. And it's funny how sometimes children can have just a total different perspective on a situation. And they'll speak about a situation and you think, that's so simplistic. And now, now, now granted, not every situation is simplistic. It can be complex and involved. I get it, right? But you understand the point here. They were demonstrating a childlike faith in their trusting and praying, evidenced by them coming to the Lord in prayer. We don't have all the answers, but oh Christ, you have led us this far. And oh Christ, you certainly have commanded us to do what we're doing right now. But notice also in verse 14, as an example for us, beloved, their posture of their heart while in prayer, while trusting and obeying and sending up their supplications to the Heavenly Father. They were in one accord. They were in one accord with one another. This Greek phrase, it comes up again and again in the account of Luke throughout the books of Acts. And it carries with it the idea of being one mind together or one purpose together, one passion together. So they're trusting and obeying all together. They're there lifting up supplications, evidencing that they're children in the faith. They believe in Jesus. They trust in Him, even though things don't make sense. And they're doing it in unity. In unity. 
I think it's very significant at this point, this first one accord phrase coming up. And here's why. Because it demonstrates for me that in the aftermath of Christ's execution and now in his physical absence, that amongst the twelve, there is not a jockeying for position or power among the eleven. There is not among the eleven a uh, you know positioning to gain more power, fame, control over the group. No, with the one accord, we understand that they all had one mind and one purpose, and that was what Jesus had commanded them to do. What a sweet, precious picture, beloved, of the the, the humility and 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 the, and the fruit of the Spirit amongst these original disciples. It's, it's folks who had experienced the love of Jesus. They knew and experienced the love for one another and they were bounded together in this common purpose and passion for what their Lord had just promised them in verses 4-8. through eight, That the kingdom is about to begin. The Spirit is about to pour, pour out. And I don't want to be front in line. I don't want, you know, it's not none of that. They're with one heart and one passion. Lord, we are here. We are open vessels. We want you to rain down and do whatever it is you're going to do in this kingdom beginning process. We are here. This unity reminds us, of course, of those precious words that King David and Prophet said in Psalms 133, 1 and 2, Behold how good and pleasant it is for when brethren dwell together in unity. He goes on to describe it. It is like a precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard. Before we move on, we have to notice that participating in this unity, in this one accord, Luke says there are women there. These all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication, the eleven with the women. And he specifically points out, as a historian, the uh, mother of Jesus, Mary, and his brothers. Women are specifically mentioned by Luke, not only in his gospel, but also in the book of Acts, more than anywhere else in the narratives of of the New Testament. I only bring that up because remember what we learned in our introductory message of the book of Acts. And it was this, that Luke and volume two of Luke, the book of Acts, comprises one quarter of the New Testament. And so Luke is purposefully bringing forth the involvement of women in the early church. He's not hiding it. He's bringing it to the surface. Now, I want to offer you several reasons why this is important from an apologetic standpoint or helping you defend the faith, helping you defend the legitimacy of the Bible. There's a lot of different ways, but when you come to this, you understand that, no, I I need to use that. I need to use the mentioning of women in the early church in my tool belt when I hear silly claims in a postmodern world about the legitimacy of my Bible. Well, first of all, as you see in your notes, there are critics who would like us to believe that the Christian religion is nothing more than apocalyptic Jewish zealots who want to start a movement to waken up the deadened Jews. And so this band of 11 Jewish men who are following this guy, Jesus, they get together and they're the ones who started the Christian religion. 
Well, I don't know if any of you have ever countered such kind of talk or such kind of accusations against the faith. But it's easily dismissed because if they really were trying to do that, beloved, they would not have included these roles of the women in their involvement in the early church. And the reason is very simple. Because in the historical context, when it comes to matters of religion, the women, they were not to be heard from in the Jewish historical context. It was the men who led. So if that's your goal of starting a new movement to waken up the dead and, you know, Israelites, you wouldn't have done that. You would have been circumventing your, your, your cause if you, would have, if you would have done that. Now, I think more relevant for us in the postmodern social reconstruction that we all live, live amongst in our days, there's many people want us to believe that the Bible, it contributes to male misogyny or the degrading of women, or you could say uh, even hating women. Uh, some people try to say that the Bible promotes that. Uh, biblical roles promote that. Well, if that's the case, if that was the intention to promote that, Luke, as inspired by the Spirit, certainly isn't afraid of placing the early sisters of the faith in a favorable light and usefulness among the early church. In fact, read the history books, and it becomes very clear that societies where the God-given roles of men and women are properly taught and practiced in those communities, in those societies, women are better protected from harm and violence. Women are better educated. Women are better cared for and overall more appreciated for their specific contribution in communities of faith. Remember what I said, where God's proper roles, biblical roles for women and men are taught. You find the flourishing of womanhood, the appreciation of womanhood. You don't find misogyny, a, a disrespectfulness. Let me just put it in plain old English for you. There ain't a whole lot of misogyny that would be taking place at the Barger household because my wife knows her Bible. Can I get an Amen. Yeah, sisters are reading their Bibles. They see how they are to be cherished, brothers. Amen. And the role God created and designed them for. And when you have a woman who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, loves and accepts the purpose of why Christ created her and brought her into holy matrimony, you will honor and you will respect and you will cherish. There won't be any misogyny taking place. Well, beloved, verse 14 makes it abundantly clear that the apostles and the early followers of Christ, they were willing, amen, to trust and obey the Lord and go back to Jerusalem. Even though there was uncertainty and such trusting and obedience of theirs, it involved prayer. But now we're going to see, beginning in verses 15 and 16, that it also included a studying, an attentiveness to the Word of God. In those days, there is a break here. A lot of commentators, we don't know exactly how many days. So we got this upper room situation where the prayers and supplications are taking place. And around that time period, verse 15, Peter stands up in the midst of the disciples. I don't have this in my notes, but it is worth mentioning. From this point, up until about chapter 13, Peter is the prominent figure. It's not Peter, you know, trying to take power away or anything like that. Uh, it's only worth mentioning because he does take the lead. P 
Peter does step up. And, and, and he does begin direct, give direction to the church. Now, from chapter 13 to the end of the book of Acts, the focus is mainly upon the apostle Paul. Now, with recognizing that as Protestants, it in no way, it in no way, shape, or form, venerates Peter above the other apostles. He never does. And in fact, if any, there's, there's, there's a point where, you know, uh, they're around one another and, and Peter wants to make sure that he's understood to be equal with everybody else. But he does stand up here. And we're going to see now that their trusting and obeying was accompanied with an attentiveness and a study for Scripture. Look at verse 16. What does he say? As a prelude coming up to the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he says, Men and brethren... This scripture must needs be fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning who? Concerning Judas the traitor, which kind of this passage is dealing with his replacement. Concerning Judas, which was a guide to them that took Jesus. Now, think about the significance of what Peter's doing here. Considering the current context of persecution, of uncertainty, he's not only praying and lifting up supplications, but he's meditating upon the Old Testament Scriptures. How are they speaking to what's occurring? What is going on? He's not running to his own reasoning. He's trusting and obeying, which involves him searching the Scriptures. Additionally, he must have been recalling the words of Christ, which he would have heard over the span of the previous three years being with Jesus. And so Peter stands up and he makes this declaration that the scriptures must need be fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of spake concerning Judas. So you get the picture of Jesus in this tumultuous time, is praying, and in his mind, he's going over and over and over again all of the prophecies that he would have known as a Jewish man. He's going through them all, and he's going over in his mind. The prophecies of Jesus, which Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. And then he stands up and makes, as you see here in your notes, one of the earliest Christocentric interpretations of the Old Testament by any new covenant preacher. Where does he get the warrant to stand up and to say, what's been happening here? Recently is a fulfillment of what those scriptures said. Beloved, he did it through the authority of the Spirit of God who placed in him the revelation that that's what those Old Testament scriptures were pointing to. Oh, yes, and that's what Jesus was teaching us. And he told us. Notice with me something else here in verse 16 about his studying, meditating on the Word of God. He says that the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. This is nothing less than Peter affirming what we call as Christians the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. I know that's a mouthful, but young ones especially, I want you to look at the sermon handout. What do we mean in the Christian community when we say verbal plenary inspiration? Well, what we're saying is we're saying something we believe about the Word of God, the Bible. We're saying something about the scriptures that Peter would have been thinking about. Amen? You see it in your notes. What we mean is that God's superintendence of the writing of scripture inspired men to write it. 
It extends down to the very choice of words. Not merely to overarching themes or concept. There's a very good statement by evangelical Christians called the Chicago Statement. And it affirms, as you see in your notes, the whole of Scripture and all of its parts down to the very words of the original. So it's not surprising for us later on in Peter's ministry regarding his bibliology or what he believes about the Word of God. You know it in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 21, it's part of one of the catechism questions. Peter stands up and he stands, he stands up and he says, The prophecy came not in the old time by the will of men. No, that's not how the prophecy resulted. The prophecies that he's thinking about right now and the ones that were fulfilled in the providence of God through Judas. He says there in chapter 1, verse 21, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, in Peter's mind, the Scriptures were a revelation directly from the Holy Spirit, given to us through the mouths of chosen men. Why? In order to better understand God and God's covenant promises. That's why the Scriptures were given. Peter started to realize that. So it's this belief of the Scriptures, given directly by God through the Spirit, combined with the teachings of Christ, that the Spirit of God uses to produce in Peter the realization that what's been happening before their very eyes was actually a fulfillment of Scriptures. But which Scriptures? Where's Peter going with this? What Scriptures were calling to his mind that he believed Judas fulfilled? What Scriptures were written and inspired by the Holy Spirit to help us better understand the covenant faithfulness of God that Peter is now saying, Oh, that's why that was written. Because it was, being, it was going to be fulfilled, and it's being fulfilled now. Well, he tells us in verse 20. You see it in your notes. Psalm 69 and Psalms 109 is what Peter quotes. Look at Psalm 69.25 in your notes. Here, in the immediate context, where David is asking God, to bring judgment down upon the reprobate enemies of God and his cause. And David literally is praying and asking God, remove them from the face of the earth. That's who he's talking about. Now, we all know David had and God had enemies at that time. Amen? All of that was a shadow. The Holy Spirit's teaching Peter was a picture pointing to the events of David's greater son, who has just had a traitor in enemies. And now Peter's saying, this um, imprecatory psalm, this imprecatory prayer, we know was pointing to the traitor Judas. So he's looking at the apostles and he's saying, don't be surprised. Hey, we shouldn't be caught off guard. Something to anchor us, something to help us with the certainty in our trusting and obeying as we're praying, as we're lifting up our supplications, and as we're meditating on the Word of God, something to help us understand what's going on is that this Scripture was fulfilled in Judas. And if that's the case, put yourself in their shoes. Whoa. Wow. Wow. That's actually taking place now? That scripture was written about Judas and Judas just betrayed Jesus and Jesus we know is the Messiah and this is all happening. It really is occurring. But not only that, he, he quotes 
as you see in your notes, Psalms 109, verse 8, in chapter, or in verse 20. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. And this was those who had forfeited the blessing in the context of, uh, of the, 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 the inspired psalmist. They had forfeited the privilege of their office. They had squandered their privilege. They had abused their office. And while Judas, as you see in your notes, he is truly an archetypical uh, picture of a traitor. The greatest tragedy, or the greatest lesson actually, the, the greatest tragic lesson we can learn about Judas is this, his failure and leadership. He was given by Christ an office of bishopric, an apostle, an office which was to be, as we're going to see in a moment, a pivotal point in ushering the kingdom of God, and he squandered it for filthy luger, selfish reasons. And so Peter's looking at this and he's saying, this is obviously a fulfillment of these things. And then he moves into verses 17 and 19 and draws really some more focus and narrative about Judas. Look at verse 17. We see that Judas was a disciple of one of the twelve. The text says he was numbered among the apostles. Luke writes a lot about this in the Gospel of Luke, volume 1. He had obtained part of the ministry. Now we conclude from this that he partook part of the ministry is that Judas wasn't a halfway apostle. Uh, 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 by that statement, Peter's conveying the fact that Judas, it wasn't like when it happened, when Judas betrayed everyone, when he come walking into the Garden of Gethsemane and walks up to the Lord and betrays him with a kiss. It wasn't like all the other apostles. I, I knew it was him all along. I just knew it. I had him marked out from day one. No, he was amongst them. He partook of the ministry. As A.J. was saying, he was there, you know, chipping in. He was there. He looked like one of the apostles. He acted like one of the apostles. But the truth of the matter is, as, we, as, as time went on and evidence provided itself and opportunity provided itself, he wasn't one, was he? He wasn't truly one. As you see in your notes, Matthew Henry, I like his observation. He says, in light of this, meaning in light of Peter's statement, what will avail us? Or we could say, what would avail anyone to be added to the number of Christians if we partake not of the spirit and the nature of Christians? And so from Henry's words, we gather the truth that Judas apostatized because he only had an outward form of religion, but he lacked that inward reality that the others possessed. He was a fake. As A.J. said, from the James 2 reading. He, he was a talker. He even walked a little bit. But friends, when the rubber met the road, he was not truly one of the apostles. Look at verse 18. It offers some rather gruesome details, does it not, of Judas's death and his subsequent decay. The text says, falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all of his bowels gushed out. Now, what's interesting is that the account of Judas over in Matthew chapter 27 simply says that Judas hung himself. And Luke here coming in and talking to the eyewitnesses who lived in the community, this guy Judas, where'd he go? What happened to him? He records that he fell headlong 
and his body burst in, in a rather gruesome way. Literally, his intestines spilled out. How do we reconcile that? Is there a contradiction between their two accounts? Well, there certainly is, there's not, especially, again, when you think about the context, as Brother A.J. was helping us see in James. Matthew's gospel would have been first and foremost received by the immediate Jewish community. And in the Jewish community, the thought of suicide, it, that's blasphemy toward your creator God. Suicide is. And so the shock of this despicable traitor and what ended up happening to him was all captured up in what Judas did. He hung himself. So a Jewish person would read that. He hung himself. <gasps> Yeah, this is what happens to those who turn away from God. This is, what ha- this is God's judgment upon the wicked. They hung himself. Can you believe he hung himself? Ultimate blasphemy against God who gives life and takes it away. That traitor taking his own life in his own hand and doing that. But remember, the historian Luke, what is he? He's Greek. And he knows the people that are initially going to receive his letter are going to be reading it from a cultural context that's a Roman Greco cultural context. To them, and their societal norms, sometimes suicide in the Roman Greco historical culture was seen really as a badge of honor, especially depending on why you were committing suicide. If you were a coward, they wouldn't consider that as a thing of honor. But, you know, if there was some sense of uh, uh, something you did and it was shame and hey, to, to give recompense of what I did, I will take my own life to show that I'm a man of integrity and, you know, I'm not afraid to die, so forth and so on. You get the big picture. So what Luke does is he describes in detail what he would have received from the eyewitnesses as they walked the little children day by day, singing, seeing the body of Judas hanging upon the tree, getting stinkier, getting weaker, getting even more grotesque until he what? Fell from the rope. And what happens when a body is so decomposed that when it falls from the rope, it hits the ground, it's not going to stay intact, is it? No. It's going to be as if it busts open. And that's exactly what happened. So there's no contradictions in the Bible. It's just more details, more specific angles coming at it from a different way of describing what happened to this traitor. Now we see here that there's the account of there being this field mentioned. We know from Matthew 27, verses 6 and 7, that a field was purchased with the 30 pieces of silver. Judas, he he comes back to the religious authority. He casts it back down. Whether this was a uh, manly sorrow, some sort of remorse, we don't fully know. But Judas goes back and he casts it down at the feet of the religious leaders. They take that money and they buy the field where Judas is going to die. And then the local community regarding that field, they give it this name, as you see in your Bibles. They give it this, this name, Akeldama, which translates meaning the field of blood. And it makes sense. This is the field of blood. This is a field that was purchased with blood money. We all know the story of what happened with Judas. He was that guy who followed around Jesus. He betrayed him. He took the money, gave it back to the priest. They bought that field. And now... It's a cemetery in our local community. That's the field of blood. Now, here's something interesting. In the early church, they would have collected all of these little details. 
and they would have, if you wouldn't know, make, turn the heat down a little bit, they would have made sure that they kept these little details because they saw them all as fulfillment of prophecy. And this one prophecy here of what Judas would have fulfilled by portraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and buying a field, it's almost, it's, it's amazing the accuracy that it's fulfilled in Zechariah. The book of Zechariah, I don't know if I gave this in your notes or not. I have it here in mind. Zechariah 11, 10 through 13. It foretells the final rejection of the Messiah and the accurate details of the price by which the Messiah would have been sold out. And so we get these graphic details that come about through meditating on the Word of God. They were praying, they were studying, they're seeing the Scriptures being fulfilled in all of these situations. But then we come to them taking action. So the trusting and obeying is prayer. They're praying, one accord, in unity. The trusting and prayer through the work of the Spirit in Peter shows them the truth, starting to connect the dots with the teachings of Jesus in the study of the Scriptures. But notice now, in beginning of verse 21 to 26, this trusting and obeying by the early apostles, there's a response. Wherefore these men, which have accompanied with us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, qualifications, so forth and so on. Um, he gets to verse 25, that they may, pay they may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas the transgressor fell, that he might go to his own place. So at this point, after praying, come to this realization, meditating on the scriptures, they're going to move into action and do something with regards to replacing Judas. And this is where, in my studies, I particularly found the text most interesting. I found this part the most interesting. Here's why. Having read this account many times, I never stopped, and I'm inviting you to stop now and ask with me, why in the world after just experiencing everything within the span of two weeks, are you guys really worried about replacing one of the early leaders of the club? They were, they were men who had been with Jesus. Jesus has taught them. We know there's others there. There were 120. Luke goes on to emphasize numbers because he's wanting to really show that the kingdom's coming. The kingdom, in fact, is growing. It's here. It's happening. So he will focus that uh, more than anyone else in the New Testament. He focuses on numbers. But the point is, is here they are within a span of two weeks. Jesus dies, shock and awe. He raises from the dead, meets with them for 40 days, consults with them, not consults, that's a bad word, counsels them, teaches them, so forth and so on. And after he ascends, we don't know the time period, but it's very short, they're already worried about replacing somebody. Now, let me just try to put it in our context. Say something tragic happened in our church. Let's say, and I'm not promised today, I'm not promised the rest of the day, I'm not promised tomorrow. Let's say I fall dead. Next week probably would not be the day you're trying to appoint the new elder or pastor. You get the picture? You guys would be thinking, if someone brought that up, you would be thinking to yourself, man, that guy's kind of a jerk. I mean, Pastor Doug's only been gone for a week. 
And he's already trying to get the position. Or he's already trying to vie for, you know, control in the church. I mean, I know we got to move on from here and get, you know, authority and get, you know, proper structure in the church when you had an elder and all that stuff. But come on, it's only been two weeks. I think we need to spend the time doing what? Praying, fasting, slowing down. But here they are appointing Judas's replacement. Why? Why? The answer, beloved, I think gives us a deeper understanding of what we're going to begin to see more of in the book of Acts. And it gives us a better appreciation and a deeper understanding. You remember of what we read in the other epistles. You remember the introductory message in the book of Acts? I said, it is a historical narrative, but it's also a theological narrative. All right? And here's where it comes in, that theological part. Track with me. We saw early on, a couple days previous here, we don't know the exact time frame, that they were taught by Jesus about the kingdom of God. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, indeed, I'm going to restore the kingdom. I'm going to res- I'm going to bring it. I'm bringing the kingdom. And it's coming with power. But it's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. But it is connected with the promise from the Father of an outpouring, a supernatural, extraordinary, prophesied for thousands of years promise of the Spirit. And then he said, it's going to come upon you. Not only is it going to come upon you, but it's going to come upon you with a purpose so that you will go out and preach the gospel. And so they go back to Jerusalem and in their Jewish theology, as we saw last week, they understood the significance of why they had to be in Jerusalem. And they're waiting because they think in some way, shape, or fashion, this is about to go down. We're part of it. How exciting. How awesome. But there's one thing that they would have been thinking as to where last week we're asking the question, why couldn't you just go back to Galilee? Why couldn't the Spirit be poured out in Galilee? Why did you have to go back to Jerusalem? Why did Christ do that? We're asking the same question. Why do you have to have a replacement for Judas now? Why do you have to have 12? Why can't you just have 11? Why are you guys so worried about his replacement? Because they would have remembered some other things that Jesus would have taught them while he was on earth during his earthly ministry and it becomes very clear why they needed a replacement and why the number had to be 12 and not 11. Now track with me. Look at verse or look at your notes, Matthew 19. Here Jesus is before he's executed, before his ascension, and the 11 that we're reading about right now who are worried about replacing Judas and we're all standing back saying, why are you guys worried about this? Why do you got to have 12? Notice what Jesus would have taught them. And no doubt in verses 4 through 8 in Acts chapter 1, he would have been reiterating this. We don't have... Guys, we, okay, when we go back to verses 4 through 8, we don't have the cliff notes or the charts Jesus would... Allow me, allow me that. The, the, the charts Jesus would have been laying out for him about the kingdom of God and what he was about to do. But he was with them 40 days. What do you think he was doing for 40 days? Right? You've got to let that sink in. He's connecting for them what he had already taught them. What did he already teach them? About 12? Well, look at Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye, looking at them, which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, 
Where are we at in Acts? Where's Jesus at this point in Acts? While they're all there hovering, trying to replace Judas. Jesus is in the seat of glory, isn't He? Amen. He's at the right hand of the Father. Jesus told them, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of His glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones. Does it say eleven thrones? Does it say ten thrones? No, it says twelve thrones. There were twelve of them at that time. Judas Iscariot was still there. And you know what Judas Iscariot was thinking, right? Oh yeah, give me a throne of glory. That's what he was thinking, which becomes evident for his love of filthy luger. What does Jesus tell them though? Look specifically what he says they will be doing. They will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now we all know when the apostles would have heard this at that time, before his execution, before his resurrection, before his ascension, they heard that and we saw how they were tripping and fumbling over themselves, weren't they? Oh, hey, who's going to sit next to Jesus on the 12 thrones, man? You know, right? You guys know that. They were confused. They, they didn't understand when Jesus says the Son of Man shall sit on his throne in glory. They're thinking in Jerusalem, he's going to be this big pompous throne of glory, right? But it's starting to come together for them now. It's starting to come together for them now. They understand that the kingdom of God is about to be ushered in with Jesus' promise that the Spirit is going to descend upon them and that they will be in some way or another sitting on a throne of authority in this Israel somehow or another and it has to be 12 seats. Jesus chose 12. He promised 12 thrones to His followers. Notice he reiterates this again, this idea that the apostles, the original 12 who had been with him, who had trusted in the regeneration of the gospel that he was offering, how that they were going to be in some way or another in charge, uniquely part of the leadership of Jerusalem in its restoration. He says in Luke 22, verses 25 through 30, you have it in your notes. He said unto them, I love this. This is one of the greatest teachings of Jesus. The kings of the Gentiles, they exercise lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. You won't be like that. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serve. Is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as one that serves. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. His, his, his passion work, his, his work upon the earth. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And here it is again and set on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This identity of them being in the fulfillment, the, the eschatological, messianic fulfillment of the kingdom of Israel is now in their minds. And they are thinking, this is about to go down now. And we are going to be the leaders in Israel. We are going to be the ones who are going to lead and to guide and proclaim the truths of the Messiah for the new Israel. It's about to happen. This identity of being the Israel of God, this identity of being the Israel of Christ and His leaders over the 12 tribes is picked up, I believe, in 
the book of James. The book of James. James opens up his letter. And he says, to, he says this is uh, James, a servant of God, James 1.1, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. James, as an apostle, who, writing this, after the day of Pentecost, who, after this, sees himself as one of the twelve sitting on the throne of the new Israel, he's writing to the twelve tribes of Israel. But not the 12 tribes of Israel that are all circumcised and have the outward form of religion. When James and James 1 says that, he's tipping his hat once again that we're on the right track of how they had this identity amongst themselves early on after being discipled by the resurrected Christ, awaiting the, the day of Pentecost, that somehow or another we are part of the fulfillment of the restoration of Israel. And when Pentecost happens, beloved, they accepted the positions boldly. They accepted the positions boldly. And they moved forward seeing themselves as the true Israel. Stephen, we'll get to it in the book of Acts, preaches the great sermon to all Israelites physically. And he says, you guys, you've, you've, you've murdered your Messiah. Oh, but we, the true Israel, we've accepted him. We proclaim him. And that's why they murdered him. So when we get to this point, we see that, oh, there's a little bit more in the back of their minds of what they understood and what's prompting how they're acting. I have it in your notes. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go there. I'm going a little long. Appreciate your patience. But does not Paul pick up this same identity? Doesn't Paul pick up this same teaching again and again in all of his epistles, especially in Romans and in Galatians? That the church is the Israel of God. That those in Christ, he says in Galatians chapter 3, that are in Christ, ye are, he says in verse 29, 329, if you be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He said in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Wow. So now we see why the number 12 among the apostles was so important. Jesus had assigned their number as representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel. That is the true Israel. The Israel of God to whom the promised spirit would come and would proclaim the kingdom of God had arrived. Fill in the vacancy of Judas then when we come to this part and we ask that question. It wasn't a mere act of administrative efficiency that they had to do. But it was a specific requirement of God's purpose in fulfilling the new covenant. There had to be 12 because Jesus had selected 12. And in their understanding, the way they're seeing it, this is a vital part of the promised spirit coming. If we don't get the 12th, we're jeopardizing the plan. We have to have a replacement for Judas. So now when you read Acts chapter 1, you'll say, oh, that's why those guys seem to be such a rush to replace him. Time fails me to make other observations. We see, of course, the qualifications of apostles. They outlined it. We wanted to be men who were with us from the beginning, from John's baptism onward in the life of, of Jesus. It's interesting that after Matthias, this peculiar way of... Uh, we, we, do, we can't rush through this, beloved. Notice that they, do, they see the importance of this, but notice that they do not take matters in their own hands. They do come before God, and they do ask God, God, you know the hearts of all men. We are going to cast lots. This isn't them just leaving it up for chance. 
you go through the Old Testament, this was a Jewish custom of coming before God and saying, God, you're in control of this decision. We're going to cast these lots and we're going to take it as you speaking through whatever the lots determine and that's what we're going to do. We're not going to take matters in our own hands. Hey, I like Matthias. He's my fishing buddy. None of that stuff, right? They're coming before God and they're saying, God, we seek you. You help us. We can't do this alone. And they cast lots. But it is interesting, going back to what we said, the book of Acts is descriptive at times but not normative. They never do this again. They never set out how to pick deacons or elders or offers or leaders in the church by casting lots. No, they come before the Lord in prayer and the discerning spirit and reading the word of God and that's how they get their officers in the future. Um, we see that. Now that's normative. We get a more normative pattern as the church develops. It goes without saying as well to some of those in religious societies that believe that the apostolate or apostles are perpetual. After this, there is none of the original 12 replaced. Even the Apostle Paul did not see himself on equal footing as the original 12. Paul described himself, even though he was an apostle, he was taught by Christ. Um, uh, the the, 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 the post-resurrected Christ, Paul saw himself as a lesser apostle, even though his word is just authoritative. I only say that to those religious communities that want to perpetuate the idea that there's a succession of the Apostle Peter. You don't see that in the book of Acts. You don't see the necessity of when Peter dies, one of them, oh, oh, we gotta, we got to have a living apostle on the earth. And so the apostles were constrained to these original 12 men. And I only make that point, beloved, because you live and I live in a context where there's confusion sometimes about apostles coming from different spectrums of even evangelicalism all the way up to Roman Catholicism. And we'll flesh that out more as we go. But landing on this footnote, when we come to these places where, I mean, it just looks like all you know what's breaking loose. What are we as God's people going to do? Well, we ought to do what the apostles and the early disciples do. We ought to quiet our hearts and come before the Lord in prayer. Amen. We ought to go and seek out his word. And then once his word and his spirit confirm a direction, we're to do something. Right? We're to take action knowing that he will lead us in all truth. We're to trust and we're to obey. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your word. Thank you for preserving it, these early historical narratives which teach us much about the understanding of the early church and also the theology that's all connected to it that was happening in fulfillment at their time. Help it to be uh, an example for us. Let their faithfulness demonstrate for us, dear Lord, a rule and a guide by which we may live as your people in the generation that we live. We need your strength, Lord. We need your help. We are weak. Lord, we are, we are frightful at times. But help us to trust. Help us to obey. And let, it, let us see today that it's not just a passive, blasé waiting. Let us be praying people. Let us be people who study and search your word. And let us, dear Lord, when your will is revealed for us through those means of grace, that we, dear Father, respond as a people who want to please you. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.